have been decimated by biblical criticism. And how does this all start? Well, <clears throat> I claim this, I cannot show this from a scholarly point of view, but, but it certainly is a coincidence, that it, you, when you attack the Bible, see, if someone reads the Bible, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. And then God so loved the world that he sent his son to redeem us. The words are rather clear. They're magnificent words. They're strange words. They're not, only, they're not always easy to believe, but you know what you are asked to believe. But just about the turn of the century, when the doctrine of evolution gained so-called scientific respectability, there was a tremendous embarrassment among Christians. I don't know about the Jews. We Christians said, in the beginning, God. God made us. That's in the book of Genesis. That the flora and fauna of the world, and above all the human person, were the result of a creative action on the part of God. And, and, and every school child memorized that formula, believed it, and that there were two parents, that there was a beautiful creature called man. And the first creature was Adam, a male, and from Adam's side, a woman came because it was not good for man to be alone. And these two were fully perfect humans, highly intelligent, not having all these difficulties you and I have. And with deliberate foresight or with deliberate volition, they agreed to a sin of disobedience helped on by the devil. Now, that's the origin of everything that follows in our holy religion, this original sin. And most people, I admit it's something wondrous to believe, but it doesn't assault our reason. Along come the scientists, in quotes, Darwin, and his hypothesis, evolution had always been with us, but had never been taken seriously. The, the theory that everything we see today in its differentiation came from an original amorphous mass. That theory has been around since 500 years before Christ. Plato himself refers to it. Plato lived 400 years before Christ. No one took it seriously. It was but one more philosophical speculation. We philosophers have every nutty idea possible, and why not that? That, that, that gas became human. And so on, that from a swirling uh, a cloud of matter, you could create a, a man and beast and values and beauty and God and everything else. That, that's one possibility. But it was not taken as science. It was taken as, as poetry or myth or philosophy. Along comes Darwin, and he apparently seems so exact, so rigorous. He had such a brilliant theory of natural selection that people otherwise of good faith who really wanted to believe in the Christian faith, including Darwin himself perhaps, it seemed to them they had this choice, to keep their scientific integrity and their integrity as intellectuals, and therefore to look upon the Bible in the very beginning as myth, or tenaciously to cling to the literal meaning of the Bible, but... but uh, then they would forfeit their integrity and then they, they would, could not face their colleagues. And I claim that this is the poison that you had people studying in the universities and in the beginning God, well, uh, not quite, because they became embarrassed 
And how could they go to university? How could they meet a Professor X, who has done such excellent work on, on the moss and how it, it adapts to natural surroundings? So this began modernism in, in the last 150 years. It certainly is the origin. I say it certainly underlies German rationalism. German rationalism could not endure that an act of faith allows us to, re to believe the Bible is the word of God, it rather said that uh, we have to have all these scientific tools and then we approach the Bible with this vast knowledge of philology, which might be acceptable, but also with, with this prejudice that Darwin is scientifically verified and true. This then gets rid of, once you are a convinced evolutionist, you read the Bible, you read German critical uh, biblical theorists, and then they become French and Irish and English and American later on. And you read a Adam and Eve, that becomes then a creation myth. Oh, oh, it's got a point. Oh, we're not saying it's sheer nonsense. No, no. But there was one man, one woman that rather primitive. That's, that's not believable. There rather were all these races of pre-human uh, beasts, hominids. And then uh, after <clears throat> trillions of trials and after millions of, of false dead-end streets, we finally had grunting things with a minimum of intelligence, climbing trees and so on. And then after a long while, we finally evolved to Bertrand Russell and, and, and brilliant people. Uh, and this is, this is really the bottom line of evolution, that without divine causality, by the mere give and take of natural forces, including natural selection, primitive, impersonal, unspiritual matter zigzags its way up into the 20th century, and, and so on. And they have millions of years of time. <clears throat> and to show how scientific evolution is, Every time Dr. Leakey or her cousin or her nephew goes on an expedition, they change the time by half a million years. It doesn't bother. The first man was two and a half million years ago. Maybe it's three. Maybe it's one. Maybe it's four. It's only a few zeros. But this is science. And in the name of this science, your theologians <clears throat> will be in tremendously embarrassed if you say you believe in Adam and Eve. Now, a lot of people say, well, so what? So Adam and Eve are a myth, but, but everything else is real. But please, it begins with this. Adam and Eve are supposed to have committed an original sin. A sin of disobedience. And as a consequence of that, though earth is in disharmony, nature groans, the world is in rebellion, and the human person, no matter how pink we look at birth, we're gurgling and chubby and we love our mother, but we have a principle of evil in us. We need to be reborn. We need a principle of regeneration. Finally, we need redemption. Now, if you don't believe in original sin, well, you can still believe in Jesus of Nazareth. Believe it or not, some biblical scholars admit he existed, which isn't that hard because they admit five billion people exist. I mean, John exists, Frank exists, Jesus existed. It's very quick. <clears throat> but, that he's born of a virgin, that he's the man, that he's a God-man, that he's the second person of the Trinity, an eternal person who took on a human nature, that to them is myth. That he came on earth to redeem us from sin. What sin? He's a tourist. 
That's the real heart of why catechetics are so bad. Denying original sin, Jesus Christ is rather irrelevant. He came on earth to teach us to be friendly to each other and, and not to be racist and sexist and things like that. That's about the extent of the incarnation. The Old Testament was the first to be demythologized by these deep scholars apparently working uh, with an evolutionary prejudice and working with rationalistic principles and biblical criticism. But the New Testament is equally demythologized that these scholars want to get the real meaning of Adam and Eve, the redemption, grace, heaven, hell, good, evil, virgin birth, resurrection, you name it, and they will suck the traditional meaning out and put in their own wretched naturalism, which denies the supernatural so that modern man, even as he has electric lights, can be a Christian. No, to be a Christian in the modernist sense, you don't have to change anything. Come as you are, stay as you are, because things are quite good. <coughs> they deny in the New Testament the historical resurrection Oh, they know that the Gospels say Jesus rose again. And even at Easter time, they say, rejoice, he is risen. They say, gee, this is a marvelous, but we have a preacher who still believes in the resurrection. But it turns out it wasn't really that there was a dead body in a tomb. And after three days in the tomb, the dead body vivifies and appears to the disciples and eats fish and has Thomas put his hand in his side. That, that's fundamentalism. That's rather embarrassing. Uh, we who believe in the electric light uh, don't. They have a spiritual meaning. That Christ so impressed the disciples that they had an event. And, and in their own minds, Jesus was more real now than ever. That's the resurrection. And the virgin birth has a similar thing. The ascension has a similar thing. I'll give you one example of how bad things are. In America, we have Notre Dame University, which is supposed to be one of the few prestigious Catholic universities. Uh, Thirty years ago, it was really famous, and it was famous for many things. It's most famous for its good football team. Now, that's America for you. I mean, that, that's the main thing. They had a very great football team. They call them the Fighting Irish. But nine-tenths of the players had unpronounceable Polish names or something like that, but they were the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame. But they also had a tradition of daily mass and communion for the students. It was not mandatory, but it was a beautiful faith. They also had solid theology and philosophy. It was never great. I don't think American universities are ever great. But they were adequate. They gave a pretty good education. Well, the time, they're changing. And we have a... Uh, a professor, a, a Father Richard McBrien, who wrote a monstrous book called Catholicism, which is selling like mad. Uh, he is chairman of the theology department at this prestigious university. And some of his previous books, one of them was What Do We Really Believe? by Father Richard McBrien. And I, I have this book at home, and it's one of the most depressing books I ever read. He will take five or six crucial articles of the creed and interpret them in the modernist way. And here's the way he talks about the ascension. Now, you and I, if we're Catholics, believe that 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, for those 40 days he was walking the earth, eating fish, talking to people, walking through doors in a glorified way, instructing the apostles, and cheering them. Cardinal Newman has a beautiful uh, sermon called Witnesses to the Resurrection. And then one day... 
The disciples assembled around him and he ascended into heaven and, and the gospel says that he literally ascended. And we know, he know, no one has ever claimed that the physical body of Jesus is on earth. No one has ever said this is the tomb of Jesus and he's in it. So he has somehow disappeared as the Virgin Mary's body has, no one says this is where the Virgin Mary is buried. We always say, St. Mark is buried here, St. Peter is buried here. So already the historical memory of the world is such to give credence to it that the faith of the church has always been that the body of Jesus is not here except in the Blessed Sacrament. Well, Father Richard McBrien is terribly embarrassed by this primitive fundamentalism. So in this book, What Do We Really Believe? He said, if you go to the Holy Land, the guide will point to a place and say, that's where Jesus ascended into heaven. And McBrien says, I have to hold my side to keep from bursting out in laughter at this primitive view. This is the chairman of our theology department at Notre Dame. And don't be smug because you probably have your chairman who have read McBrien or maybe taught McBrien. And they themselves are extremely embarrassed by such primitive things as virgin births physical resurrections, real ascensions. By the way, that we say that that Jesus, body and blood and his whole body, ascended into heaven, does that mean he went into orbit? We're not that primitive. But we say the gospel account means this, there was the body, just as you would see here, but glorified, and that, that he actually did leave the earth and then became immaterial. That entered into this dimension of eternity. We don't say if you really took a spaceship, you'd find Christ on the moon. That was the primitive stupidity of the communists that when they put their cosmonaut in orbit, they said, well, uh, Yuri Gagarin had a telescope up there and he couldn't find God. Couldn't find God or Christ. And everybody thought that was scientific proof God did not exist. This is the state of, of theology and philosophy. They, these people deny the divinity of Jesus Christ Probably this is the central heresy of our time. It started with the Protestant. Today, perhaps one out of ten Protestant preachers thinks Jesus Christ was God. You have certain Protestant preachers who don't believe in God, but they still believe in Jesus Christ, which is easy. I believe in, G- G- I believe in Julius Caesar. I believe in King Henry. I mean, it's quite easy to think that a man walked the earth. So what else is new? So, but in the Catholic Church now, the real rot starts with the divinity of Jesus Christ. And that is, that is undermined by this modernist, pseudo-rationalistic interpretation. They deny and attack the fact that Jesus Christ founded a church, a hierarchical church from above. The correct truth is this, that from above, that Jesus, who is God, gave authority to humans, with the primacy being given to Peter. And Jesus said, I leave you, I go to the Father, but I I build a church, I build an assembly, and I build it upon a rock. And the rock is you, Peter, the fisherman. And when Peter died, Peter's successor will inherit the fisherman's ring will sit in the chair of Peter. And this is our belief, so that the Holy Father, the Pope, has authority from above, not from uh, a voting, not from a democratic process. We don't simply decide how many persons in God this year 
and decide whether the Virgin Mary was... No, the truth came from Jesus the teacher, guaranteed by God. The authority to teach that truth comes from above. And bishops, in their function as successors to the other apostles, receive their authority from above. This is what one means from, by the hierarchical church as opposed to dem democratic institutions. Now, this offends modern man. Not only is his sense of science offended by miracles or by virgin birth, because he who, who looks at electric lights, how could he believe in a virgin birth? But he who has just voted in the prime minister, how can he endure something from above? Everything has to come from below. The people are somehow divine, and by some magic chemistry, if 51% of us say anything or do anything, that's true, that's good, that's authoritative, and so on. This is the great, uh, uh, one of the great uh, errors in political philosophy and everything else. The martyrdom desacralized worship. Michael here has written a three-volume work, Liturgical Revolution, which is unanswerable. People attack Michael before they read the book. And some of them are afraid to read the book. It's a temptation. If they read the book, they're afraid they'll be tempted to become Catholics, real Catholics. But Michael's whole point shows how even within the Catholic Church, and this is really what we're talking about now, especially within the Catholic Church, one has no longer the emphasis on worshiping God because God is adorable. That's the reason you worship God. People think, well, I worship God to feel good. No, you love someone who's lovable. You adore God because he's adorable. Dignum et justum est, says the uh, preface to Holy Mass. It is right and worthy and just that we adore thee. And God is the center of our worship. And God is the great consolation of our worship. But religion in the eyes of the modernists has become the cult of man. We celebrate community. Everything is greeting and togetherness and it's one big, wonderful lodge. That's what worship is supposed to be. That one, what, there has been a diminution of faith in the Mass as sacrifice, and as Michael said, in the real presence. You know, the doctrine of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist is almost too good to be true. That is its greatest weakness. And yet... That's why we know we'd better take it seriously, that if you simply tell me that by walking across the street I can meet the Holy Father, well, that's kind of interesting. Usually you go to Rome, you have to bribe a guard or something to get in the walls. But if you tell me by walking across the street I can meet my Creator, my Redeemer, my Lover, my Judge, it's incredible. But the church has always taken this seriously. We have martyrs who have died for this. We have all sorts of miracles on this. But when faith diminishes, all of these external helps to faith are done away with, and we have all of this blasphemy and stupidity and people marching up in, in beach attire and chomping on everything and laughing and giggling and all that. Well, this is thanks to this modernist attack for the reasons I've given you. One downgrades the ministerial priesthood that we are told that we're all priests. They quote St. Peter's wonderful letter, you are a royal nation, a priesthood, a people set apart, which is so. There's the priesthood of all believers, which we agree, and so do the Protestants agree. But 
I am part of the priesthood of all believers, but I am not able, I have no, I have no power to say mass or forgive sins. The ministerial priesthood have holy orders, one of the seven sacraments. That is removed or downgraded by the martyrs. We have a minimizing of sin. And there are two kinds of sin, and neither of them fare too well in the modern catechetical mind. The, the original sin has been dismissed thanks to these scientists who know that these little monkeys, what can you say, a little monkey committed a sin? So, so therefore, this original sin has been dismissed. But then there are personal sins. I mean, after all, I mean, never mind what Adam and Eve did, I've... Had a pretty nasty history myself. And, but, and years ago, I went to a Jesuit school. I've been educated by the Jesuits all my life when they were Catholics. And, and uh, I've taught in the Jesuit university for 30 years, and I've seen the total uh, turnabout there. But I, I was warned. I mean, they told us about sins. All ten, we had ten commandments of God, six of the church. So there were at least 16 ways of committing a sin. And some of them are kind of fearful, and sometimes I'm tempted, sometimes I'm not. Well, today, it's, it's almost impossible to get in Catholic instruction the fact that there are commandments which, if you break, you commit a sin. A few years ago, there were two sins that were very popular, and you could not do. These were the two sins that we really got serious about. Thou shalt not kill a North Vietnamese. That was very serious. North Vietnamese. And thou shalt not pollute Lake Erie, the ecology. But second, third wife, fornication, contraception, porn, you could always get somebody to, well, if you did it lovingly and so on. We had situation ethics. And the chief architect in the Catholic Church is a father, Charles Curran, a priest professor at a pontifical university, the Catholic University of America. I heard he's come to England. We're getting even with you people. I mean, you sent us the Beatles, and we're sending you Curran. And you, if I were you, I'd close the airports. I mean, just let people in and keep those experts back home. But then you know what they do? They take a rowboat from Holland and come here, and they give you a workshop. Workshops are the death. That's where the poison comes in, these congresses with all these experts. Now, they kill the sense of genuine tradition. The modernists are embarrassed by the past because the past had saints who, who, who practiced asceticism, saints of the Blessed Sacrament, saints who testified to the virginity of Mary, and this whole bit. They're embarrassed by the sense of tradition, and they think the best thing that could happen is total forgetfulness of the past as possibly having validity in its time, but they have this giddiness there's a new world aborning, that we have to start out fresh, we have to forget royalty and, and, and all of this uh, sense that we are slaves who genuflect before God. We have, to re we have to forget mythology of the past. We have to build ourselves on modern insights, democracy, science, and so on, and on community, on one world, and so on. And we have so much to learn from Marx and Freud and Darwin and everyone else. So there's a new world aborning, and tradition embarrasses them. That is why they so viciously attack the Tridentine Mass. After all, you, you, if, if the way things happen now, if I were caught in a really serious sin, 
And they're all kind of sins, and some more serious than the others. And some sins are, are if, if, if you caught me molesting a, a youth, a boy, in a homosexual act, that's kind of serious. And then you can catch me in horrible uncharity and so on. But people, if you catch people doing that today, well, it's not so bad. They'll get a psychologist testifying that it's normal. But you catch me going to a Tridentine Mass, it's the great perversion. And then if you dare mention it, you've done something unspeakable. If you ask permission, you in England have the indult. We don't. And if they find out that a Father X says the Trinity Mass with three people present, that he, he is maligned. Now why is that? Well, the Trinity Mass has thousand years, at least it's, it's really two thousand years, but to, let's, say, let's say that as it existed 30 years ago, it was essentially the same Mass that existed, uh, say, 1600 years ago. But in the year 400 or so, it started taking the form it had. And it's rich with tradition. It is the cathedral. It is the spirit which made all the cathedral. That this worship of God, this solemn chant, this, this awe before the divine majesty. And therefore, this it is the one flag which reminds people of tradition. And that flag has to be ruthlessly cut down. And that's why you have your indult. Certain people would love to crush it. In our country, there's no, you can do anything in church with at least the tolerance of authority, but just say, in choivo ad altari dei, and you will find that authority still works. You'll be, you'll be trotted out and probably given a trial. And may, Michael knows all sorts of stories on this. Now, the resistance has come very late and not always strong, and not always unified. I gave this same talk Saturday before a different group, I think, in London, and my, my emphasis there was on unity. If our side, and by our side, I have, I, I'm not meaning an elite group, but people who believe the penny catechism, that's sufficient. If we could only unite on essentials and stop excommunicating each other on other things, we could have done much better than we have. We came too late, we were not always strong, and we were not always unified. And very often, our side has been disarmed. And I want to just run through a quick uh, series of ways the, the modernist establishment disarms potential uh, critics of their revolution in the church. Here are the steps that... You will come home, uh, you'll read a little bit in the paper, or your, your child will come from a, a secondary school or something like that, or you'll hear a book review about something, and it says that X ha is happening, and X seems to you to be evil or untrue about faith or morals. And the first thing is, uh, it will be denied. They'll say, oh no, you heard wrong. Oh, your child, he misunderstood. Or, or that reporter took it out of context. And you say, oh, oh, I'm sorry, Father. So you'll agree that you, we people, and we should have this attitude, we are, we are in good faith and we presume other people act in good faith. So when we take the matter to competent authority, the pastor or, or the principal or something, we will be disarmed by saying we heard it wrong. But after six months or so, we hear, we hear it right. What we heard the first time was what we heard, and we go back. And this time they say, yes, that's right, you heard right, uh, uh, you're right, 
But what's wrong with that? That uh, you heard that contraception isn't always evil. Your son heard that fornication isn't, isn't a sin provided there's love. You heard that Christ isn't really present in every particle of the host. You heard that. But don't you understand that we're stressing the pastoral approach, that we don't want to frighten away people with, with rigid dogmas. And, and if you could only understand the nuances, and if you could only see the, the correct uh, approach, if you were, in other words, if you only could renew your faith, if you had only come to that renew workshop, you would have understood that this thing you heard is perfectly all right, perfectly consistent with your past. It's just a new stress. And well, that, if, that, if you still frown, they come up with something else. Well, nothing essential has changed. It's just a new way of putting a different emphasis. Because you might be disturbed over the catechisms coming from Corpus Christi Center. And, and the way they downplay some, oh, no, 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 the same essentials are there as in the Pentecatechism, but we have these modern methods, they're so superior. They're based on pedagogical insights of psychology and everything else. And, the, and it's just the, that you're probably used to them. But the faith is being, is being really transmitted through these. When, uh, when, but, but when you finally persist, and most of the time you won't persist, most of us want to be at peace. We have important things to do. Go to the beach, play bridge, talk to, look at the television. What is more important than that? But only a few will persist, the remnant. And you'll finally say, wait a minute. Rome says this, X, about fornication or the real presence. You people say non-X. Somebody's wrong. You'll, you'll, you'll finally put it to this, that you will confront these modernists with a clear statement of teaching authority. And <clears throat> you'll also say, you know, to be really pastoral, you have to base yourself on the truth. You're not being pastoral in any acceptable sense by telling a young man he can have sexual relations with his girlfriend. You, the best way of shepherding the flock is to be rooted in the truth. And the same is true of the real presence or anything else. Well, then you're told that Rome doesn't understand the English church. Now, I don't know if they do that here, because you people are small, and, but in America, 240 million people, 40 million Catholics, filthy rich, that's our problem. I mean, we got plenty of money, the hierarchy's got plenty of money, and we Catholics who resist the modernists, we are told that Rome says A, X, and you say non-X, well, you see, this is the answer we get in America. Rome, Rome with its, its tradition, and especially when you have a dumb Polak pope. They don't say he's a dumb Polak. He's Polish. What do they know? And the Italians weren't that bright either. Did the Italians invent the car and, and the jet aircraft and all this other stuff? They're just fruit peddlers. So, whereas we in the American church have this dynamic American church, the American experience, and we trot out all our wonderful insights and our great culture. I hope you people know what you're missing, not coming to America. We're fantastically cultured. You should see our uh, Disneyland and our space travel and our deserts and everything else and our cathedrals. I was telling Michael that sports are the new religion in America. When I drive to work every time I drive to work, 
I passed by a new cathedral, Notre Dame de Football. It's a huge coliseum uh, housing perhaps 100,000 people and have services every Sunday. 100,000 people worship at the football game. You say, so, I mean, you should see American culture and our great philosophers like Dewey and, and, and William James and so on. But it's this arrogance that disarms you. 